welcome to Dead Headspace, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Unbearing the Dead, where we exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today, we have a returning guest host, uh, Ken McKinley. Say hi, Ken. Hello. Today, we are talking with the author of Ghost Story Shadowland, the Blue Rose Trilogy, as well as co-written books by Stephen King, The Talisman, and Black House. Peter Straub, say hi, Peter. Hello. Let's just jump into it. What got you into horror? Um, uh, well, I would say uh, the question of perhaps being forced to get a job was one. <laughs> and the other was uh, my childhood, and that's what brought me in the horror. Brennan, why don't you, uh, you or Ken, dive in? I'd love to hear, you know, you you teased us a little bit. You said, and my childhood. I mean, I want to hear how that connects to horror. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I've written about all this stuff uh, in, at, at some length, and uh, but to recap, I mean... Um, I, I'm just a little grim for me to go through, and and I don't want to give the impression I'm asking for any extra sympathy or pity or anything like that because I'm really not. And I also do this with some reluctance, although I have done it many times before. So the truth is, and I guess it's difficult for me. It has always been difficult for me to to admit that this is the truth about myself that I was, alas, what do you call it, molested by, by some human monstrosity in a movie theater when I was a little boy, like six, I think, when I got into the unfortunate habit of stealing out of my house and walking by myself to a movie theater and buying my way in and uh, sitting there for a couple of, for a double feature. Uh, my parents uh, went not. Anyhow, I, I, I did used to do that, and on one of those occasions, I met this monster. That was, um, it was too much for my actual consciousness to carry along with it, and so I made myself forget it. And at the age of six, I had the ability to take this monstrous memory and stuff it in a huge lead-lined bag and drop it down a well <laughs> where I hoped it would stay forever. Um, uh, every time you drop something down a well, 10, 20, 30 years later, it comes back in bigger and worse form. And, um, that, you know, so that's, that's what makes guys go nuts in middle age. Uh, on top of that, uh, when I was seven, I was hit by a car very near my house. Uh, um, and I should have been dead, but, but I wasn't. I had multiple fractures, all kinds of shit. And so I spent a lot, long time in the hospital when I was seven. And um, I learned uh, what pain was. And when children do, most adults don't take it very seriously, I guess. Because, uh, I mean, I've, I've seen it happen again and again. Anyhow, it, I've, I've recently spent a great deal of time in hospitals. And most of the time now, they're, they're less rigorous and strict or doctrinaire about the about um the time they give you the drugs uh 
they're 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 willing to fudge a little bit. Whereas uh, in, in the forties, they made you wait. If it said four hours, they made you wait four hours a minute before <laughs> before they gave you the stuff you really needed. Anyhow, clearly, all this is still alive in my head, and I still resent those buggers for not um, allowing me to deal with my pain. Um, uh, but on the other hand, they gave me this great experience, which <laughs> is uh, full of rancor, but uh, uh, great experiences can be filled with anything. Um, anyhow, it was a difficult matter. It was difficult to adjust to that also, and because I was flat on my back. I was in a hospital for a long time. I, I was in like a half body cast for a long time. And, uh, and I must see your school. Um, I, I hated being handicapped, to use that word. I hated having to use a wheelchair. I hated not being able to walk. I hated not being able to get experience directly, but having to get it through my brothers who would tell me what was going on at school. But otherwise I had no, no communication. Because kids don't visit other sick kids usually, at least they didn't then. Maybe there's a more humane generation of children now, I think, and probably they would. Uh, anyhow, it was all, all that was unhappy, deeply unhappy. But, but the worst part is the image that it left me with myself when I encountered when I came across or had access to what seemed like a near-death experience to me. I, 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 I thought it really smelled like the actual. It felt like uh, lived reality, even though it was a, a proposition you'd need a, a science fiction novel to really get into the full. But it was, <laughs> anyhow, it, um, it, has, it made me believe in stuff I might not be willing to believe in otherwise. Um, and I, I can never know which parts of what I do is uh, based in uh, an auto accident, it is a trace of a child who remains, or the more damaged and bitter child <laughs> who replaced him. Um, fortunately, I had been advanced a year in the first grade. So when I missed the year, I knew everybody. Everybody else was just the same, and I looked the same. Uh, I was I was very different, but uh, I still had all my friends, and I did my best to have a normal grade school experience. That's an answer. Uh, I most horror writers that I know will give you a long, long, delicious, delightful explanation of the stuff they loved in childhood. You know, the Forey Ackerman stuff, monsters, monster movies, famous monsters of film, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I never even heard of that stuff, except for the horror movies I saw when I went by myself, which were accidental. I mean, I saw The Wolfman. I had no idea what it was. I sure liked it when I was six. <laughs> I saw Abbott and Costello meet Dracula, meet Frankenstein. It's a great movie. It's the best Evan Costello movie. It's really funny. I never really had the same emotional experience of horror 
that uh, uh, all these friends of mine had, I think. The thing that I that got me into it was when I was a child, but of later years, like 12, I bought a copy of uh, uh, Great Tales of Terror and the Supernatural, a modern library of giant, a fabulous anthology that uh, collects Machen, Lovecraft, you know, all the, all, all the greats. And, and uh, gave me kind of a sample of uh, people who were writing horror. Now the sample ended about 1915 or something like that, which is a nice kind of era. The, uh, the genteel, muted English um, kind of terror. I can't remember the name of that. Oxford professor wrote a horror novel, a horror story every Christmas. Remember this guy? You're talking about M.R. James. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ramsey Campbell loves that guy. Let's have it. Oh, Ramsey, an old pal of mine, of course. Yeah, I actually had a question that connects you to later on. Anyhow, I probably said enough about all that, whatever it was. You know, there's a lot to cover there, but one thing that I'm zooming in on, focusing on, is uh, Tom Pasmore. That you, you. That's where you got Tom Pasmore from, huh? For mystery. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I got his, uh, I gave him my history. Uh, and then I could deal with it in a kind of removed way uh, and made it easier to deal with. I guess I really wanted to write about that because in some ways, although it isn't the actual center of my existence, it, it, it was very, very definitive for me. I mean, it really... Um, sort of helped define the, the kind of person I was to be ever, ever after. My experience with you um, started off like many others, where it started off with Ghost Story. Mm -hmm. And that one, I mean, for everybody else that's ever read it, you know, it was literally a groundbreaking story that was layered like an onion, the way I like to describe mm -hmm. it. I just can't just so many layers that you peel back. And then when you find another layer, you peel that back to reveal more. Um, that was the first time I'd ever read a story mm. that was that rewarding to be able to get through and get to the payoff at the end. That one was a slow burn that just, uh, I reread I re it as often as possible. It's just absolutely Thanks amazing. So much. Now, what that did is that got me to come back to look at your back catalog and see what else you had out there. And that's when I got into Julia. What can you tell us about how that came about? Uh, that came about because I did not want to get a job. I'd been um, living in Ireland, and then we, and we after um, I, I kind of dropped out of the PhD program at University College Dublin. So, so my wife and I moved to London, and uh, I was trying to write uh, novels. And I wrote, I had written one that had been accepted by. Uh, both an English and an American publisher. And I written a, a second one after that, but much to my astonishment and horror was uh, um, rejected by my two uh, publishers, uh, English and American, uh, leaving me with, um, you know, a wife saying, you know, I could use a little help with the money around here <laughs> uh, because the money we had when we, when we left our jobs in Milwaukee 
was beginning to dwindle. And so, so, Susie had been working almost all this time um, in, in various kind of amusing and interesting jobs. Uh, Julie came about because uh, as I was working away on another novel, I'm trying to revise that after it had been rejected. My wife actually said to me one day, you know, you ought to, I, I, I'd like you to try to go into that little bookstore you go into every day down the bottom of our hill. And I'd like you to see if you, if you could ask them for a job. And I said, oh, no. I said, just give me a little while. I'll fix this. And um, I wanted to, I wanted to graduate from Bohemian poverty. Uh, Bohemian poverty wasn't doing me much good. And uh, I wanted to at least be able to support myself and my wife on, or, and anybody else who might come along with, uh, with my writing alone. Uh, that still seemed possible and still is possible, actually. So she had you get the she, job done? She gave me the extra time. She, uh, she said, okay, as long as you feel pretty certain. What, what I felt pretty certain about was an idea that I'd had because I'd, I'd become aware of the success of Exorcist, uh, the first Ira Levin novel, whatever that was, like uh, Rosemary's Baby. Yep. It was a huge success. And then there was a novel by that Tom Tryon. Uh, he, he did two uh, occult novels that were big successes. So I looked at those books and I thought, that's not all that many. Um, I think I'm, I'm going to see what I can do with that kind of material. So I thought of all kinds of things. And uh, part of um, the material of Julia was going down to that neighborhood, which is a very nice neighborhood called Holland Park. Uh, I lived a long way away from that in North London, Holland Park Square, southeast, I think, southwest, I don't know. Uh, anyhow, it's a, it's it's a beautiful area with nice houses and this uh, this uh, delightful little park, which is man of manageable size. You know, it's not like Central Park. Um, and I and I saw the building where my heroine's sister-in-law would live, and so I used to go back to this one place uh, day after day and just make notes. I guess my point about childhood is that it's, it's, it was different from my case than, than it is with most people in general, and it's different from most horror writers. So it seemed, it, seemed uh, it, it, it wasn't something that I thought of doing instinctively. It wasn't something I, I was doing because I knew the patterns, though I'd read a lot of Lovecraft, and I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd read a number of other horror novels, but there weren't a great many horror novels around in um, at the end of the fifties and the beginning of the sixties and through the sixties, really. So, I you know I, I I thought I had a chance if I at least I thought I could get publication and thereby an advance, which is uh, what I really needed to help pay for our next year. So uh, uh, I walked around London making notes and. Uh, and when I started to write the thing, it went pretty easily. And I've, I've, the odd experience that I mentioned before was that 
I felt right away kind of oddly at home. The minute I wrote the first sentence of Julia, which described a little girl running down a sidewalk and, and, and whirling into a park, uh, the minute I wrote that sentence, I felt, oh, this is going to be all right. Because I knew that I was going to be writing at least as well as I could write. I wasn't going to write down anybody. This is going to be uh, you know, a full court press by me, uh, by uh, my, my abilities at the time. And uh, so that's what I did. And I, 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 I outlined this kind of you know, creepily Jamesian story. I mean, a lot more creepy than James. And, and um, it, it did, in fact, get published. I didn't have to go to the little bookstore down at the end of the hill and uh, <laughs> apply for a job. And uh, I, I was able to encourage my life of crime, in, the, in other words. That's awesome. And I now, went. Now, something before about, about Tom Passmore. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I've, I, I guess what I should, I'm not sure if you had an actual question about Tom Passmore. But uh, he did, he, he, he did seem to become quite important to me. Um, when, when I was writing Coco, he was still a minor character. Mm-hmm. And then later when I was, I, I sort of felt he was unfinished business. And when I was done with the novel Mystery, in which I had alluded to the Tom Passmore book, Tom Passmore's own novel, I had become uh, quite involved with him. And he, he, had, he had begun maybe a little too easily to speak for me and that I could offload parts of me on the Tom and um, improve parts of me <laughs> by pretending I was as good as Tom. Uh, anyhow, he was... Um, he was a character I liked because he had a lot of depth. He was kind of, um, he'd, shown, he'd known a lot of unhappiness and sadness. And uh, he'd known a lot of terrible stuff. And he'd carried on and he'd done a lot of decent work. I tend to admire, uh, I would admire a man like that. So, so he, he kind of took over. Uh, in, 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 in the throat, I really thought he, he, he moved uh, into the center of the stage. Yeah. And, and when, uh, after that, when I needed a, an observant um, protagonist, uh, there, there he was. He was ready. And, and in one case, it was his family, so he couldn't avoid it. Mm-hmm. Uh, lost Boy, Lost Girl, which is my exercise in... A, in um, a totally binary reality because almost everything in Lost Boy, Lost Girl can be read one of two ways, in either of two ways. Either our, 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 our boy Passmore is telling us the truth or he's, he's making things up to make himself feel better. <laughs> <laughs> Which do you think is, is the real one? <laughs> sounds like you're describing every author. <laughs> You know, on the while while we're on the topic of the Blue Rose trilogy, um, S.A. Cosby, he had a question. He is the author of Blacktop Wasteland. It looks fun, and he's also the author of new book Razorblade Tears, 
Uh, yeah, your buddy Stephen King uh, tweeted him for both of the books, man. I saw that, actually. Yeah, I saw that Stevie had weighed in. Yeah, and uh, Razorblade Tears is um, actually... <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Well, they sound great, and uh, I, I'm, I'm interested. I'd like to... Uh, I'll, I'll get one. Uh, I'll, yeah. You know, which one should I read? That's an insulting question. No, no, not at all. I'll just uh, choose one. I, I mean, I've only read Blacktop Wasteland. I was going to say at the end of the show that Razorblade Tears is... Uh, I'm going to start that next week. Brennan's read Razorblade Tears. You read both, Brennan? What would you suggest? I, I liked Razorblade Tears better, but they're both phenomenal novels. All right. And uh, I brought him up because uh, we have two listener questions. Um, the other one I'll ask a little bit on later on. But uh, since we're on the topic of the Blue Rose trilogy, which, by the way, man, I mean, that I loved it. It's so freaking big, but it's yeah. just it's it's like I didn't think my mind could be blown when there's this first revelation in Coco. And then, no, there's like 12 more after that. So at the end of Coco, Sean. Uh, he asked, um, did you always know the end in Tococo? Oh, good question. Um, I, I don't think I, I did always, no. But, but uh, Coco was one of the books that I had planned out reasonably carefully before I started. And I had all the characters very well in mind. I, I went... Um, I went to Barbados and I checked into a, a little resort that had a pool as well as the ocean. And I, and I swam and I wrote. And, uh, you know, I goofed around meals. But uh, I, what I wrote was I wrote notes for Coco in this big stenographer's notebook. And I'd almost fill the whole thing up by, by the time I came back home. So I knew a lot, but I don't. I don't really remember if I knew the ending. But but I knew before I was very far in that uh, Coco was uh, going to wander off into the woods somewhere and uh, escape. And we had been in um, in Belize and Honduras, and we'd seen those little ports and airports. So uh, that seemed the perfect place to send him off on his way. Yeah, um, you know what, man? As soon as I started reading it, it just pulled me back because it's all about it's heavy on the Vietnam vets, and uh, it it brought me back to a few years when my wife brought me on a trip to D.C. and we walked to the uh, the Vietnam Wall, and there were all these there were younger teachers with. Some were in wheelchairs, but a lot of them were older veterans from huh. Vietnam. Uh, there was, in one case that I specifically talked to, a Korean War vet, and then uh, later generations. But I see all these Vietnam vet, uh, they're old, yeah. older yeah. men now, and they're all, they're all looking at this wall. They're pointing, and I just start sobbing. I literally started sobbing because, and it, it took a minute for me to understand what was happening, but my wife and I walked a little, it's a lot of ball. There was a lot of them. And I'm just thinking. That's concentrated grief. Uh, uh, you know, that's grief. That, that's, that's what? Concentrated grief. It's a wall of grief. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Coming right. It's a lot of, it's a lot of negative energy. And I just thought these are, 
these are older men and they're pointing at names, trying to find brothers that died in very terrible ways when they were just boys. And it negative. So that the energy is not negative. I mean, that's what I think. I think, uh, what, 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 what they get from it is an immense richness because it is still true that for guys who were in combat in Vietnam, it's still really the center of their experience. It informs everything they've done. Um, all, all the guys I know who had combat experience, um, you know, they practically wear it like a uniform. You could, you can, you could, if you're, if you're, if you're trained to see it, you can see it easily. But at least, at least it could. When I was when I was writing Coco, I could spot Vietnam vets in a second. But uh, that's because I felt um, sensitive to and uh, in, in tune with the uh, problems that I was trying to describe. Um, when I before I started writing Coco, I was lying at night on a sofa in the office I had been in Westport. A great office. I never had as one as good sense. And I was lying down. I was looking at a Channel 13 documentary about uh, the opening of the Vietnam Wall. And I've written about this once, but I've never talked about it anywhere, I don't think. Um, I, I was really just captured by these guys and by something the same thing that got you. Uh, it was it was the power of what they were feeling, uh, the, the the fact that it was still so strong in them that it. it I mean, it was uh, and it meant something so real that it, in a, it almost has to be called positive because it's uh, to to reject it is negative. You, you know what I. What, what I learned during that whole period was that we cannot turn away from real sorrow, uh, painful sorrow and grief. Uh, they enrich us. That, you know, people die, but if we can carry them with us, we are enriched by them. And we are enriched by their memory. And we are enriched by the very feeling we have for them. And so all, all I can kind of continue, it, uh, unfortunately, a lot of it hurts. Because <laughs> here's you're caring for this person that you grimly realize you never, ever can see again. Um, that's a pickle, you know. Uh, it's terrible when people die. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's I agree. The only way you, 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 you have to uh, uh, make sure they're, you know, they're kept in mind. Really, yeah. Absolutely. Um, I just had one more comment on that, and then Kendra Brennan, please take over if Peter doesn't reply. But um, yeah, my my whole like even thinking about it right now, like it hurts my heart. And the the worst part is, yeah. is when they came back, mm. they were hated, and oh, that that's so terrible. gross. That's absolutely real. They should have been. They should have been celebrated for the, their courage, and instead they were dumped on uh, for political reasons. They didn't even uh, have a choice. A and and it's, it's, it's the misery of that war was broadcast directly uh, into homes via television. 
You can turn on your television and watch some embedded guy crawling through a, 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 a you know rice paddy with a, with a rifle and a bunch of other guys around and watch watch people are shooting. Um, we don't. <laughs> it sounds it sounds a little wild west. Uh, anyhow, it's not the sort of thing apparently should be broadcast, except very late at night to very you know, so, selected audience. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, and a massive name in the horror film world, Tom Savini, he was, uh, he was a, I don't know what the title was, but he recorded the Vietnam War while it was happening through a camera, and um, because of that, he missed uh, working on the Night of the Living Dead, the original, but it's just, you know, you talk about your past, how you got into horror, and it's not a good one, but, you know, you got also guys like, I'm not saying that's how Tom got into it, but you're right. Not everyone's a good story, and I'm sure it was painful to talk about. But I I appreciate you talking about your childhood. Mm. That's I really yeah. do, man. Ken, jump in, man. Uh, it's Brennan's chance. Go ahead, Brennan. Sure. You know, kind of piggybacking off what Patrick just said, with so many authors, you know, including Stephen King, we've brought up a couple times starting to write their horror stories based on this innate childhood genre and movies and, and mm -hmm. books, um, you know, even stemming into science fiction and taking the horror aspects of mm -hmm. that. What I really loved about and was surprised by in the King books I've read was, uh, of course, their uh, immediately the novels were The Shining and Salem's Lot. Uh, but in... in in order of publication. And it just looked so vibrant. Uh, the whole James Dean thing has a kind of a glow, but Steve was like electricity and uh, neon. You know? <laughs> Somewhere there was a brass band playing and uh, there's a circus uh, way on the edge of, the, of, of your vision. It, it, was, it was so inclusive and also so kind of free. And uh, that that smelled like good water, you know. <laughs> it smelled like the right thing. So, uh, ghost story was the was what was the result of that. And um, I'm very grateful to Steve. I guess I sometimes forget to be grateful to Steve for that. But 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 but, but I must be because. Uh, I, I would never have written Ghost Story had I not read Stephen King's work previously. Anyhow, so, I mean, that was a... I, the reason I didn't think I'd be persuaded, of course, is that he was a genre writer. And at the time, a genre writer nobody heard of. Salem's Lot had been published, Terry had been published, and had done pretty well, but it was still really obscure. Salem's Lot was about to be published, no, had been published, but without any indication on its jacket that it was a vampire novel. Uh, I'm talking about the paperback. He was relentlessly, ruthlessly put down by most reviewers, especially academic or literary writers who dumped on him savagely. Uh, so I read this guy and I thought, well, <laughs> this guy's got a lot of blood on the ball. <laughs> He's, I mean, he was, he was like a fiction machine. 
uh, he was all, all his parts were an adjustment, you know, all he had to do was learn how to drive his car a little faster. Um, although he was, he had a lot of velocity to begin with. Um, I, I, I just, I, I was, uh, excited by Steve's work and I, I, I loved him. Uh, we, we were all very, very great friends and it was, um, it was a lovely time and, he was a great guy to talk to because he was extremely direct and funny, and uh, he knew he he knew what hor- horror was about. He really did, of course. I mean, and of course, unlike me, he's just muscled forward. I, I don't know how he does it. I mean, I am actually stunned to see an, yet another one of these massive books. Uh, come out every year. I'm pretty sure he has like multiple creatures in his head that take turns yeah. to write the new book. Yeah, I think he does. You know, once Steve told me that if he couldn't write, if he couldn't write, he thought he'd be up on a on an overpass with a rifle. <laughs> Makes sense, man. Yeah, that's all he had. About right. <laughs> So, you know what? I think naturally I have to ask. I'm sure you've talked about this a lot. But how did the talisman even come up? How did Tommy collabing with him even come up? Oh, that was easy. Um, Steve uh, was uh, living in England at the time. I'm, I'm not sure what year it is, but uh, 77, 78. And, and he, he came down to our house. I think his whole family came. And uh, I owned a, 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 a row house, a terrace house, like a brownstone here. Um, and so the kings were sleeping in various rooms. And Steve and I stayed up late. Uh, we were drinking a, a ridiculous amount of beer. And Sounds like a good time. What I remember is I had a huge glass top coffee table. And the whole top of that table was crowded with beer bottles. And so we were having another beer, and Steve, Steve said, hey, you know what? And I said, what? And he said, we should write a book together. And I said, about a second later, I said, oh, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, that'd be fun. Let's, let's, let's give it a whirl. And so we agreed to do it. And then we did a very curious thing. We thought about our calendars. Steve, in particular, had to think about his calendars because he had two books to write in the next two years. And I had one book that I had to write in the next two years, which seemed about right. And so we agreed that two years from that, then we would get together and start to work on the idea for our collaboration. And, and we both had a ton of ideas when we got to it. it was, you know, it was a true collaboration, um, an immense amount of pleasure. Um, uh, almost all the way through, and Black House was a much was a totally sunny uh, proposition, which both of us felt uh, that uh, everything was going really well, and uh, we, we we liked the results. I think it's a better book too, though. And in fact, I'll never persuade anybody of that because uh, 
people seem to love the talisman, mm. you know, and, and they reread it over and over. Uh, it, there is a great deal of warmth in that book. And I think that's the warmth that existed between the collaborators. That's fair. And, you know, man, I, I just know one of the listeners is going to ask me if I should, why I didn't ask this. So I'm just going to say there's, there's not a chance of a third one happening, right? You're retired now. I'm not exactly retired, but it seems unlikely to me that I could uh, summon the energy to uh, get in the ring with Steve again. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know many <laughs> younger collaborators. I don't uh, know many people. I don't know many. He's, he's got like three books out a year, man. <laughs> and Joe Hill, his son. He's, Grisham. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, and, well, and his, his, his old school. What about his son, Joe Hill too? He's, he's doing really good for himself. Joe Hill is great. He's, yeah. he's a really, really good writer and uh, a, a terrific man, a good father, you know, a, a really good human being, I think. And he, he, he started off with a bang. That first book of stories that P.S. Publishing did, I think. That's mm-hmm. a wonderful book. I forget, what, I forget the title. Um, anyhow, it's, it's uh, Joe, Joe Hill's first book. Most people, like 90% of people uh, in the book world had no idea that Joe Hill was uh, Joe Hillstrom King. <laughs> and, uh, and he wanted it that way. Yeah. So, in fact, he was horrified. Once I, in a movie theater, we, we were talking, and I alluded to this fact, and he backed away in horror, holding his hands, and said, Peter, no, don't. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Because he really didn't want anybody to get that information before he was ready to put it out there. Mm-hmm. And finally he did, you know, and, and uh, everything worked smoothly. And it, he, nobody could say that he, he got there on his father's back. Not at all. Yeah, I agree. People didn't know who he was. Yeah. For sure. Ken, uh, we've been hogging the air, sir. How about you go ahead? Oh, I've got a boatload of questions. But one I want to start off with. So I grew up in the my horror reading started in the eighties, kind of the heyday with all this stuff. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, My question is um, I remember distinctly how everybody poo poo horror as absolute trash. Even my high school English lit instructors, they, you know, I wanted to read Stephen King and they're like, Oh, that's not even worth the the fuel to burn it. Exactly. Um, Why do you think they, they down, they they played it down so hard for Stephen King and the rest of the horror crowd. Why, why'd you guys get such a hard time? <laughs> well, um, most genre literature uh, is dismissed by people who insist that there's a, 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 a real difference a, a barrier between the, the literary novel and genre novel. I don't think that, I think that wall is permeable, in fact, almost invisible in places. So first of all, there's a prejudice against genre writers of any kind, of any kind of horror writer. I was going to say romance, but they would probably see horror as infinitely more depraved and, uh, you know, knuckle-dragging than uh, the romance field. So, so there's a, 
there's a prejudice against it. And there's a feeling that it's a, a, a form of literature for teenage boys, that, it's, that it, uh, it sort of um, examines aggression or presents aggression in a fashion that uh, um, opens the gate uh, in certain teenage minds to the pleasures of violence. So the teenagers uh, have a great, have a ball reading this stuff. Or, or just uh, the primitive imagination of the adolescent mind is incapable of uh, grasping Hamlet, but it can uh, have no problem with um, a werewolf. Um, that uh, that point of view is, is really uh, largely driven by content. H.P. Lovecraft, nobody could explain what made H.P. Lovecraft so popular, but people, GIs in World War II lapped him up. And... Uh, Really? There was always a substantial readership for these, you know, really crazy stories. Uh, so, so he stayed in print, and he had to be at least um, acknowledged. And Edgar Allan Poe, people of Poe, and maybe that's it. I don't know. But anyhow, it's a, it, as 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 it became more a market-driven category, as more and more. Uh, there were horror shelves in bookstores as opposed really to fiction and mystery. Now there's fiction, mystery, horror, romance even maybe. Um, and as, as everyone knows, there, were, there was a lot of money rolling around publishing in the 80s and in the 90s. And, and so people saw this as a, as a way to get entry and as a way to um, try to create a, a reliable income, which for writers is very difficult. You know, <laughs> uh, It's hard to put a salary together out of, out of what you do. I got a follow-up question with some yeah. of this. I, I want to go back a little bit. So you're a Wisconsin gentleman. Grew up in Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Okay, so... from gentleman. Yeah, so another person from Wisconsin in the horror industry was Robert Block. Did That's you right. did did you ever bump into him through your your time? And yeah, you, I did. Can no. you share Can you share any experiences with that? Sure. When I was a little boy, uh, Robert Block was a young man in uh, working in television in Milwaukee on a local station. It was a, actually MB, MB, NBC station WTMJ draw where some journalist um, cartoonist drew drew the things that Bob Block was talking about. So Block would describe a situation, this guy would draw it. And it was kind of a funny episode. And then it was gone. But I, I watched that almost every day when I was a little boy on, uh, on uh, the only television in our neighborhood, which is in the house of a kid across the street. Anyhow, for some reason... We wanted to watch Bob Black. So th there he was. And I always wanted to tell this to Bob Black. The first blurb I ever got was from Bob Black. Oh, wow. So I, I mean, I, Holy I, uh, shit. he's special to me and I, and I love him forever. Um, but I didn't, I didn't see him very often. And then when I did see him, he was just totally charming and funny. Uh, I saw him at conventions a couple of times, and he, he was always wearing uh, this very snazzy 
like George Raft, blue pinstripe suit, double breasted. I mean, he he looked he looked both very great and as though he could take a pistol out of his pocket. Uh, so he was he was you know he was a he was such a nice guy. Except when I when I came up and I said Bob Trump when I was a little boy in Milwaukee, and he gave me this look said hmm. And then he walked away. <laughs> so it, it's a draw was not a good memory to Bob. When he was dying, I called him up and we had a lovely conversation. It, that seldom happens. I was very glad it did. Ken, I, I got to jump in real quick. That was a go ahead. go ahead. I didn't know that about Block, Blurbin, a book of yours. What book was that, man? Uh, Julia. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure if it was a later one or not. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm really curious. Do you get a lot of blurb requests too? Are, are you the Robert Block of uh, the 21st century? I was the Robert Block of uh, the 90s <laughs> and probably <laughs> the aughts. Mm-hmm. I wrote a lot of blurbs and uh, I wrote them in various uh, conditions. So sometimes they're very, very eloquent and other times they're a little grim. But um I I always wanted to be as generous as possible to people who are just come, come, coming along. And uh, I also tried to be as honest as I could. Well, sometimes in the case of friends, I had to be slightly less than perfectly honest. <laughs> <laughs> there might have been a little exaggeration in the uh, discussion of the greatness of the volume in question. But I don't even remember what book I'm talking about. I do know that I I had to do that twice, probably. It's probably better that you don't remember that and blurt that out. That might <laughs> cause a hard feeling or two. <laughs> yeah, it is. Now, now there are writers who really don't bend the line at all and will say, okay, I'll write a blurb, but, but it won't be entirely positive. Right. And, and then the writer has to decide how grown up he is, you know, or she is. Yeah. Are you bum? Are you, I, the best word I can think of is are you bombarded with that request or any other similar requests still? No, see that was uh, that peaked in uh, the nineties and the aughts. I, I I seem to remember, and it still it, it trailed me up 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 to now. But now the the requests uh, come in a, a, at the rate of about two a week. Whereas before I get four or five, and wow. I get books in the mail, um, uh, but I just started saying no. And after I had a lot of health problems, I've been in the hospital more times than I can remember, almost literally. And um, and I, I've been um, I've I've had to suffer from uh, extreme um, ill condition because I was lying in a hospital bed for three months and 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 I I, I, I lost strength and I, I couldn't walk anymore when I got out and so I've been I've been busy with stuff like that also with the stuff that put me in the hospital in the first place and so therefore I feel as though, as though I don't have the energy to do blurbs because a good blurb means you spend time writing the book and you take notes. Right. And, you, and then you take notes on your blurb and you try to figure out what that book is really about. And they give people a sense, yeah. you know, what it would be like to read that book. 
Um, and all that, it can take three, four days, you know. And so I, I, I no longer feel as though I can squander that. Also, I don't write introductions anymore. It's hard enough to write fiction. <laughs> it was quite enough. My wife just gave me water. Thank you, Sue. You're welcome. Yeah. All right. So, Peter, I want to go back to my favorite book, um, Ghost Story, and I think many people's favorite books. So I have never felt, and I live in Michigan, I have never felt cold huh. and the frigid temperatures of winter like I did when I read that book. There, the atmosphere in that book is unlike any book I've ever read, and I've read a lot of books. Mm. Please, please tell me how that book came about. What tidbits can you give us on the genesis of this book? Um, I I took a long time before I wrote it to try to figure out what was going on in it. We were living in London, and we were living in a house that I had bought with the proceeds of the money from Julia. And if you could see me now, because in London then, you could buy a house for very little money. I mean, and you could get a mortgage on, on uh, the, the council of, of London. So I did that and we, we had a really nice house. And in that house, I was doing whatever, I was finishing, I, I wrote the entirety of Ghost Story in that house. And I remember um, that, I remember thinking about cold and, and it's very easy for me to remember the sensations of being physically cold because I'm from Milwaukee. Yeah. And when I was a kid in Milwaukee, the temperatures very often went to zero and you had to be outside anyhow. So, so we all had, you know, the, the hairs on our nose break off. <laughs> our fingers went blue and, um, you know, it's it, it just then you, you come inside and you're shivering and your mother holds your hands in her hot water, some kind of water. Uh, that only mothers know about and, uh, and you, suddenly you're warmed up again. Anyhow, it was, it was, I, I, I felt deeply familiar with cold. And I was also writing about upstate New York, which in my imagination is Wisconsin. Uh, when okay. I went to upstate New York, when I was a teenager, uh, to have a look at it, I, um, I was on a college tour, actually. I, I, we were driving through upstate New York me and this other boy, this other boy and I. And it struck me that it looked just like the farmland around my grandparents' farm in in um, in, in upstate Wisconsin. And the towns look like the same kind of towns. The way Buffalo looks a lot like Milwaukee. If you look at a corner in Buffalo, it could be a corner in Milwaukee with a little tavern, you know, windows that aren't all that clean, uh, brick. Um, anyhow, it's a means home to me, I guess. I think my imagination was really ignited uh, somehow. I, I, I know I wrote it with, um, after I'd finished the notes, I, I, which took three, four months, maybe. 
because I really wanted to think it out. And I think I had the ending kind of in mind before I started. Very, or I, I thought of it not long after I started. But, but I remember the work went uh, very smoothly uh, and happily. And I wrote the whole thing by hand in wow. big Borum and Pease notebooks that are about that thick and about that tall, wow. lined, numbered pages. Ah, oh, so beautiful. I mean, <laughs> and, and another of God's most perfect creations, the almighty pencil. <laughs> <laughs> these things, these things will get you everywhere. So how long did the, the book take you to write? Writing, writing, writing by hand was a was 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 one draft, and that that a, a real first draft because I didn't go back and revise the way I would now. So I had like four of those big thick books filled with the text, and the next thing I had to do was read through it and revise it on those pages, and then type up the results. And then edit that. So this is uh, this is pre-computers. This, this yeah. is in the late seventies, and uh, but it's what it was just part of what we took for granted. We used to um, type a corrected paragraph and just staple it on or glue it in. So manuscripts <laughs> would often have all these lumps and ripples in them from all these staples and all this glue. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that. That is awesome. Well, that's the way mine, mine looks sometimes, because sometimes you just can't stand typing it all over again, right. especially if it's 800 pages. You know? <laughs> you know, I, I got to say, it was, a nice, it was a nice, nice experience. And toward the end of it, toward the, when I was in the bottom half, the back half of Ghost Story, I had this the distinct feeling of rolling downhill, of rolling downhill atop a huge machine that I was only barely holding in control. That's how I felt. (laughs) So how long do you think it took you from, yeah. How long do you think it took you from the time you started to the time you sent it off to your publisher? Year and a half, maybe. Year and a half. Okay. Now, before we, before I pass this over to Brennan, I got one last question for you. Were you, were you ever in a chowder club or how did that chowder club idea come about? You know, I I never have been, and I I wouldn't want to be even. Uh, I mean, I could do it if you didn't have to wear tuxedos, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's a little too stuffy and formal. However, uh, I, I I just made it up. Yeah. But I think there I think there's a long tradition of things like that. There's certainly it's like the club story in the uh, horror world. We all talk about club stories, yep. and. Um, how, how many of them there are. You know, Bob Black wrote a bunch. I think Steve wrote a couple. I never did, really, I don't think, but uh, many, many did. All right, Brennan, go ahead. Go ahead. All right, so we, we've got thunderstorms and we got dogs that don't like it, so if uh, if that comes in in the background, that's what's going on there. Oh, um, right. So some of the books we've talked about today, Ghost Story and Coco, Talisman, Black House, you're no stranger to writing a doorstopper, to writing a big brick of a book. Yeah. And it feels like that's a very, you know, 
80s and 90s thing that's not happening quite as commonly in horror these days. So I was hoping you could give us some thoughts on why that is and what it is about those big, beefy books that always appealed to you. Yeah, well, uh, what appeals to me and people like me about long, uh, intricate, multi-layered uh, narratives is that they remind me of Victorian novels. And I, I have a real love for Victorian novels because in that is a time when many, many techniques that we use and, and, and styles were, were invented. And, uh, and you can see plots being formed over uh, sequences of novels. It's, um, uh, you know, it was exciting. That's where things were happening. Um, in, in fiction at the time, as far as I know, well, I mean, when we were educated, we were only educated on English and American fiction, really, because uh, that's what we thought all fiction was. <laughs> did your publisher try to get you to write that length or did they just give you carte blanche on, you know, write whatever length you think it should be? Uh, where I was going with, with all that was that in the, in, in, in the eighties, uh, big books were still popular and, and it was n noticeable readers wanted a long experience like that. And I am temperamentally suited to delivering a long experience like that. Because I always like a long, slow burn. Because when it comes at the end of all that, it really counts for something. Yeah. Uh, I think, I, I mean, pretty much that's what I've done. Uh, I've written books in which the burn might be hard to uh, locate. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, um, but, but they're not about uh, creating... Uh, narrative like uh, it's a rogue mail it's called uh, it's a it's a pure piece of forward moving fiction uh, the, in the first in the first page this guy uh, takes a shot at Adolf Hitler at his uh, country place and misses and from the rest of the book he's running away from a whole lot of Nazis trying to kill him it's a very good plot. It's certainly scary and uh, involving. <laughs> and uh, the movie made for him was pretty good, too. You know, Rogue Mail, Jeffrey Household. Uh, now, I, 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 I like books like that. I, I, I didn't think that was what I was about. I wanted big, roomy stories. Yeah. Whenever I start to think about a character, I always begin to think, uh, what, what was his grandfather like? You know, and I, I, I see all these little doors opening into digressions that maybe are useful and could move the plot forward. So uh, if, you, if you add lots of touches like that and plenty of, others, of other kinds, you build up a long book. Uh, long, many characters also help to uh, create a long book. And I think, I think for a time it meant a kind of responsibility on the author's part. It stood for a kind of seriousness to a commitment to narrative, uh, to sharing, um, um, a gripping a real deep experience 
with the reader, all, all, all that kind of thing. Uh, and then we lost a, a whole lot of whatever allowed us to look at a page for more than 50 seconds at a time. <laughs> you know, what do you call that? Uh, attention span. Our attention spans shrank to what they had, uh, half of what they had been before, or something like that, it seems to me. And uh, when people began, when people looked at very long books, uh, you know, say 800 pages, anything more than 600 pages, when people look, look at books of that sort, they, uh, they, they think, now they think, oh, I don't have enough time for that. And also, that was boring. Yeah. And and if they open the page and look at a paragraph, and it's a dense paragraph, let's say it goes on for 12 lines, and there's a big word here and a big word there, um, our average reader looks at it and say, oh, that really is boring, and then close it up, because uh, that reader's looking for short paragraphs <laughs> and a short book. And there was a time when I was much younger when they applauded when I brought them long books. And there was a time when my agent said of the book I was working on, he said, Peter, I just want to tell you, your publisher's enthusiasm will be directly related to the shortness of the book. <laughs> wow. He's trying to hold me down. Now, unfortunately, that book was a throat. You know, 800 pages, a 900 page typescript. Yep. Uh, didn't uh, And uh, I think that may be the best book I've ever written. A lot yeah. of people don't read it just because it's so long. It might feel like a punishment, you know, instead of a pleasure. I hope it doesn't. I, I, there's a lot of good stuff in that book. I loved it, man. The throat was amazing. Um, my favorite of the trilogy was was Coco. Uh, yeah. I, I just, I don't know, man. I think because of the stuff that I said earlier, and it just... Not to take away from mystery or the throat, but it felt more raw. It felt more brutal. It is. It was more raw. Uh, all of that was uh, happening at the same time as my awakening to various to the facts about myself that with which we began really um, in uh, in in an analytic setting. Coco was the product of, of the Coco was influenced by the by the insights and the and the turmoil that I was experiencing in my analytic sessions, uh, the openness to um, rawness is is what made those books possible and what gives it its uh, its flavor to people who can see it like you can. Um, there were, it was um, a time really of struggle and of uh, real consistent emotional pain. Um, this was before the time when I was in physical pain all the time. <laughs> I don't know which I prefer, you know. Um, yeah. Sometimes one has both and then you're really, that, then you got a maid, man. <laughs> so yeah. I, I got a question for you, Peter. Good. Um, so you, You've got three film adaptations of your work, well, two of your work, and then one with the collaboration with King. Um, do you have well, a favorite? Do you have a favorite? Oh, it'd be hard to pick. You know, I'm, 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 
I mean, I, I don't much like any of those films. <laughs> and the third one, the, the third one isn't made, right? right? If you're talking about, the, in fact, it may never be made. I hope it will be. The it Talisman looks, series? It looks, it looks more like getting filmed than and any of the other possibilities. That, but but um, with Ghost Story, Ghost Story ruined the plot of my novel. It yeah. squashed the plot. And it, it it kept a number of characters without keeping the reason for their existence, and so you don't know what these people are doing on the screen. They look very peculiar, yeah. but uh, you have to speculate about what their role is. Um, and and the whole thing is kind of I don't know. Uh, it's kind of uh, I I it depends too much on special effects. Right. I, th I think it should be far more atmospheric than it is. Uh, I love Alice Krieger. I, I have married Alice Krieger in my heart, I think, because she did <laughs> such a good job. And she looks so great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a big Alice Krieger fan. How much uh, creative control did you have with those adaptations? None. None? Not at all. That's what I wondered. Yeah. I was I was told that I would be uh, invited to the screen, and I was really kept at arm's length. And they didn't want us, me to see the script. And the script went through various changes, and probably at every revision, it got a little worse. Oh. Uh, the uh, what they did with my plot was to turn it into what my friend Warren Bachet calls a jump out movie, and uh, that's not the, that's not what I was looking for, and right. it. it, it it, it confused me and kind of baffled me or hurt me that, that, uh, that they should have taken my project and made us, you know, uh, a jump out movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. It doesn't really describe any I, of your books, I, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I, no, I don't think so either, but it, it was, um, anyhow, the, the, the movie experience was, uh, odd because, because I, I, I was kept so far from it. I was invited to a screening in New York, and I took the same Warren Bichet who uttered to me the words uh, a jump out movie. And uh, and that was it. Uh, the only one of the actors I met was Douglas Fairbanks Jr., who looked very handsome as he shook my hand. Yeah. And that's, that's all I can say. <laughs> so out of all of your work, is there one that you think would be particular suited for the silver screen? Um, Coco. I think Coco would be a really good movie. Be a great movie. Um, yeah, yeah. They're, uh, we're having prob problems. They're really uh, misguided. Uh, and they turned they turned the my story into kind of uh, a serial killer through uh, northern Wisconsin <laughs> scenario, which is a little odd. Um, The movie of of Julia is 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 kind of lovely in a way. Um, it's it's also kind of incoherent. The screenplay was written by the lighting man who, who came to my house once and was the only person I've ever met who was green. There was a real distinct greenish under pallor. To his skin, 
So I think I think he had very very bad habits. <laughs> you understand? <laughs> you know, so like it. this guy, this guy's a lighting man, of which he's very good. And he wrote screenplay because they didn't have enough money to pay and uh, enough decent money to a screenwriter. So the screenplay's okay, except it doesn't explain a whole lot of things, and and consequently, you have to figure out what these people are to each other. Because it's never made any clearer than it is when you first see him. Now, I'm, I kind of dislike that. But it does have one spectacular, beautiful shot of Mia Farrow drying her hair. <laughs> Just, uh, I have recommended to everyone you should have a look. It's, uh, it's a dazzling moment. Um, what did, what did you think? It was a kind of odd duck, but uh, let's not get into that. What did you think of Mia Farrow being cast? Is Julia at the time I thought it was fine. I would have been, I would have uh, accepted almost anybody because I wanted to see that movie made. <laughs> but Mia Farrow's problem was that she had already done something like that uh, in what you know, Rosemary's Baby. Rosemary's, Rosemary's Baby. Baby, of course, yeah, where yeah. she was great, and uh, she she didn't want to uh, be typecast as a you know a helpless victim of supernatural monstrosity. And who could blame her? Yeah. Um, can can I take over real quick? I, oh, I want tell you. I wanted to finish. I had one more thing I wanted to say about Coco, but I do thinking about it now that TV series are starting to get really big. I honestly think that since Coco is such a big book and it has a lot of elements and layers to it, I don't think that a movie would do it justice. So yeah. I think an HBO series would be amazing, or a Netflix series, or Whoever, yeah, yep. that, that that's a very good answer to a, to the problems presented by a book like Coco. Yep. That there's just a lot going on. Yeah, uh, if they had more time to do Ghost Story, Ghost Story, I'd love to see redone mm. uh, as a multi-episode uh, tale. But for some reason, Universal, which has owned the rights forever, won't sell them. They won't oh. yield. And they that. won't do anything with them either. It's uh, it's very, very I, maybe unprofessional of me to uh, speak of this, but it's um, it's very, very annoying. Yeah. Uh, there's no reason why they shouldn't behave in the way other companies do, and the way Universal does with other properties. So it's as though they have some special hatred of those story and wish to see it buried. <laughs> well, <laughs> their movie being the only, uh, you know animated video version filmic version available well, yeah I'd be annoyed too I'd I, I, I love to see that yeah. And yeah. Um, I was going to say that um, on the subject and the uh, last topic or last comment on Coco for me, for me is that it did feel like I was hearing first person accounts and before my grandfather mm. passed away uh, five or so years ago, he he was a sergeant in the Korean War, and my dad had a, he oh. interviewed him because my dad's a history teacher, and um, he went back to college and um, he wrote a paper. Uh, he got an interview before he died, and I don't think that research could capture the same thing that you did with Coco or like my father did with the interview with my grandfather. It's yeah. there's, there's some brutal horrific yet beautiful magic about first-hand accounts that you can't capture otherwise. I'm very glad to hear it. 
It's, it, it, it meant a lot to me. With Coco, I knew that I had stepped up. I knew I had raised my game. I saw this thing on television, uh, this NPR program about the wall in Vietnam, and showed all these soldiers. Haven't we spoken about this? Yeah. And, and when I when I watched that, I felt like as though I've been struck by lightning. And I, I had my notebook in hand, and I wrote down, "Never write anything you don't believe." And I looked at it again. And I thought, "That's actually right." So I, I wrote it again. Don't write anything you don't believe and uh coco was the result of thinking like that where all of the of all of the matters that in a horror novel would be represented literally are, are can be presented as a product of uh, a mind pushed to extremity yeah. so they they are hallucinations they are delusions they are you know neon daydreams mm-hmm. but uh but they, they they seem real to the person who's experiencing them. But we I'm not asking the reader to accept that they're real. Uh, so in a way, I, you automatically become more psychological. You start um, turning uh, the literal monsters back into the uh, if you take the metaphoric aspect away from them. Um, is it and, is it fair to say that there's and I never thought of this until you just said it about the narration being um, questioned. I knew it, but I never, it never dawned on me that is this, uh, is your love for Lovecraft? Was that influential in Coco? Um, not in Coco, probably in Floating Dragon. Okay. Um, Coco, I don't know who was, who it was I had in mind. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I've, I've, I, I have read like a demon since infancy, damn near. And uh, sometimes I realize if if I couldn't talk about books, there'd be very little I could talk about. You know, <laughs> food, you know, movies. Uh, <laughs> I got one more second and uh, final listener question. Then Brennan, please take over. So this is from Cena Palato. She came out with this book, Children of Chicago. Looks good. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's excellent. Um, really proud of her. She just got mentioned in the New York Times, and you know, huh. she's a she's a hell of a writer, man. Um, but she asks, uh, oh, my apologies. I just mi- okay, there it is. So Cena asks, Mr. Straub, what piece of advice would you give to new horror writers today? Hmm. Well, what piece of advice? I suppose um, you ought to join HWA if you're not already a member, because it's quite nice and uh, it might give you company of a sort you need and can't get anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of, and it does a lot of good. The other thing, of course, is to you know read even more than you've already read and especially read works of general literature. Uh, don't concentrate. Don't, don't read horror uh, exclusively. I've, I've met a lot of people who do, and they, and they don't get far. I mean, they don't even get horror far because, because they, can't, they can't see into it. You know, they, it's, um, it's a little dispiriting. So 
it's, it'd be a good idea to read, you're going to hate me for this, to read Middle March by uh, George Eliot, which is very, very long, but also probably the most perfect novel ever written and one of the most moving, um, Middle March. Brennan, you, sir. Sure. So when, when people hear your name, Peter, uh, there are certain novels that come to mind. So I'm curious, in your back catalog, do you have any titles that you wish had gotten more attention when they came out or throughout your career? Huh. Wow, that's nice. Um, I'm sure the answer is yes. <laughs> I wish uh, I, I wish um, Lost Boy, Lost Girl, which, which got very good reviews, had done a little better because I thought that was a very convincing novel and, and I liked, uh, I liked the ending. I liked the way the ending was written. Um, it was a, it was a very, very, um, commanding book and it made me, it made me, it made me dream about binaries, about binary systems. It was the craziest thing, uh, because everything I was doing was, could be read in one of two ways, you know. So anyhow, uh, nobody said anything about that because, of course, nobody noticed. <laughs> I put in clues. Well, um, never mind. Well, let's, let's see if we can that. change it. I don't know. Things. I wish. I, I wish the last novel I wrote, um, Dark Matter, a Dark Matter, had had done a little bit. Did pretty well. But I wish it had done a little better because I thought it was a really interesting, nice book. And I put a lot in it. And anyhow, I'm not complaining. I just wish uh, we had sold another lot of paperbacks. Can you paperbacks, uh, paperback sales have really dropped. Well, they really died because nobody nobody buys mass market paperbacks anymore. Very right. few. Yeah. Well, as you know, I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know. That sucks. Yeah. Uh, Ken, you, sir, uh, do you have a last question you would like to ask Peter? I do have a last question. Peter, what are you reading these days? What am I reading? Oh, it's really interesting. If I can only remember what <laughs> I'm reading two books. One is because, because I was riveted by the scandal about Philip Roth and Philip Roth's biographer, Blake Bailey. Uh, I had bought that book. And I was halfway through when the when when people started talking about Blake Blake Bailey having raped a girl, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and and, and the publisher dropped the book and withdrew it. <laughs> and Blake Bailey was hung out to dry. I mean, he should have been because he did a really bad thing, but the irony is he was poised to get everything. He was going to get a Pulitzer Prize for sure. He was going to get a massive advance. In fact, I think he got it. I don't think he has to give it back. I hope he doesn't. Um, he was going to be number one on the bestseller list for a good long time. The book about a writer. It made me even more curious about both Roth and Bailey because what Bailey had been accused of and was guilty of was was visible in Roth, even to a stronger degree. Though so Philip Roth, I don't think ever, I'm sure, never had to rape anybody. I don't think he ever did rape anybody. 
but he was really, really interested in sex uh, to an astonishing degree. If he, if he were in an elevator with a pretty woman, pretty soon he'd be standing next to the pretty woman and saying, you know, what are we doing? You know? <laughs> One of those people. And, and if, if confronted and uh, abused or, or, you know, criticized, he said, this is what people do. I'm a human being. This is a human being way to act. And he's perfectly right, except you can't stay married to someone like that. <laughs> yeah. And right. he married, he, he had two of the worst marriages ever seen. They were two of the worst marriages in history. The one he was rescued from only because the ex-wife was, oh, the wife still he's married to, who was torturing him and who was a psychopath and was screwing money out of him was killed in an auto accident in Central Park, you know, where that never happens. Roth, Roth went to see her body, and he looked down at her, and he said, amazing, you're dead, and I didn't have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. She was a poisonous, evil person. His next wife was a, a narcissistic actress named Claire Bloom, you know, who's a, a, a wonderful actress, I got to say. But she and Roth were not a, um, uh, an ideal team by any means. <laughs> and he had the, and they, these marriages last a long time. You know what? That's a good segue to what I wanted to ask last. Uh, your career has spanned, what, we're going on 50 years? Huh. Around I, there? My first book was 73. Okay, so for... 40-ish years. Uh, you, you've been married for longer than that, right? Four years. Yeah, so my question is, and I've read in an interview, Stephen said, felt this way, but do you, uh, do you contribute the longevity and the success you've had and not going off the path and mm. staying focused? Do you contribute a lot or most of that to your wife? I certainly can uh, attribute a great deal of it to my wife who made, who made it possible for me uh, to do so. And, and until the point where I actually did have an income and was supporting us. Um, but Susan had supported us for a couple of years. Anyhow, we, we lived on money we'd saved and our parents uh, gave us a little money from time to time. But basically uh, she had a salary. And then, and then all of a sudden there was a little money from publication and our life changed. That's phenomenal. Um, so yeah, I can wrap this up now. And I just wanted to plug three books, three authors. Uh, like I said earlier, Sina Palayo, she's doing a lot of awesome things. Children's Chicago. It's basically about a cop that uh, there's fairy tales uh, City Life of Chicago and a lot of crazy shit happens in that one. Uh, I, I just finished that recently. Another book, I don't have the physical copy, hasn't come in yet, is by Heather Levy. It's called um, Walk, uh, Walking Through Needles. Um, it is a book that is through the same publisher as Children of Chicago. Another crime book, and it, it's just intense. Um, what is that publisher? The, yeah, so I was about to mention that. They're both through Paulus Books, P-O-L-I-S. Okay. 
and oh. uh, Paulus and and uh, Children of Chicago is through Agora A G O R A. That's a uh, Im- that's a yeah Agora. Uh, I can't talk. <laughs> that's a imprint of Paulus. Okay, and there is. <laughs> the third one is Razorblade Tears. Let's say Cosby. And Cosby is pretty well known, isn't he or she? Yeah, his name's Sean. Um, what was it, Andre? He told us a funny story about how he got his middle name. But um, <laughs> anyways, uh, there's actually one more thing. Since this will come out a week before Scares at Care, a big event that me and Ken will be at, um, I'll have copies of I Got a Story in Here. Mm. And it's basically a Boogeyman origin story. And uh, <laughs> Joe Lansdale was kind enough to say, kind of not, kind of not, I can't talk, kind enough to say some nice words about my story. So, listeners, if you're at Scares of Care, look us up at the Silver Shamrock table. Um, I'm just going to say final thoughts for all you guys, and then we'll wrap, we'll say goodnight. So, Peter, any final thoughts, sir? Final thoughts. Um, uh, I think horror is uh, still alive and with us, but I think what you can really see and have been able to see for a long time is that it is, in many of its um, aspects, mingling with the, 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 the novel without genre. And, and it, there's an interpenetration that it has done good to both uh, partners. Uh, both the literary novel and the horror novel have been uh, enlivened by this uh, porosity. Excellent. I think, that, I think porosity is the ver- the noun for porousness. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, oh, where can people follow you, by the way? Where can people what? Follow me? Yeah, like on social media. They can follow me on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. And I have a website. Peter Straub. That's a long time. P-E-T-E-R-S-T-R-A-U-B. Brennan, final, final thoughts, sir. I just want to thank you for the uh, taking the time to speak with us. You are a living legend in the horror industry. And it's, it's our pleasure, our honor to uh, be able to talk with you this afternoon. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, and thanks for those uh, very kind words. You guys are the best uh, web hosts, the best podcasters in the world, and uh, and uh, you do, everybody should send you $100 checks. Everybody, and <laughs> the sound of my voice should send you checks for $100, and uh, I'm going to check up on this. Wow. This will be destroyed, and no one will hear my plea, and, except it will still be out there. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how to follow up. Ken, final thoughts. <laughs> Peter, <I'm sorry. laughs> Peter, I just want to say thank you. This has been an absolute thrill for me. Um, as a, a horror fan growing up in the 80s, uh, talking to you is literally a bucket list, momentous moment. Um, thank you so much. I, I wish you nothing but health and prosperity in the years that come. And I hope that we get to speak with you many times from here on out. It's That'd be great. Yeah, thank you. I, I'd like that myself. And my final right. thought, my final thoughts are, sir, if it's all right, is uh, I just want to echo them. I thank you from watching you on uh, that awesome documentary, Lovecraft, Fear of the Unknown, with John Carpenter, Neil Gaiman, and so forth. Uh, I, I have watched that countless times. I love hearing your thoughts. I love watching you in interviews. This is a bucket list item for me that I never thought I'd 
I, I never thought I'd have the chance to talk to you. So thank you for and oh, it's easy to talk to me. No, I you don't know until you know. So okay. thank you. Thank you for that, sir. Listeners, next episode is with uh, next Monday. It is with Brennan. He's in the guest seat for his uh, debut novel, uh, Slattery Falls. Me, Ronald, Kelly, Gabino Iglesias, Ken McKinley. We all celebrate Slattery Falls. Thank you, thank you, listeners, for spending uh, time with us. Peter, it's been an honor, man. Have a great night. Ken, Brennan, I love you guys. Have a good one. And fun. Thanks a lot. You are now leaving Deadhead Space.